Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. They were big. They were ugly. They were pretty much running the southern end of the county with their meanness. That's how former Tennessee Bureau of Investigation agent Bill Coleman describes the Bondurant brothers. These bros were born in Memphis in 1955. Their parents, Hugh Peter and Sidney Lipcomb, who went by Big Pete and Polly, both worked as military contractors. They eventually settled in the Elkton, Tennessee area with dad working at Redstone Arsenal down in Alabama and mom working as a school teacher in the local county. The boys were named Hugh Peter Jr. and Kenneth Patterson. Now they go by Pete and Pat. So we've got Big Pete, Polly, Little Pete, and Pat. Lots of peas going on there. Yeah, there's definitely a theme in this family. These boys, Pete and Pat, are they twins? They are, indeed. They are fraternal twins, so they're not identical. My understanding of that is, what, different eggs, right? Isn't that the deal? Yeah, two separate eggs fertilized by two separate sperm. So they end up with half of their genomes in common, just like any other siblings, which is why they often don't look any more alike than siblings that were not born at the same time. Identical twins or paternal twins is because one sperm fertilizes one egg and then after conception, the zygote splits in two, creating two identical but individual embryos. I'm glad you brought up their twins. A lot of people make a big deal about the fact that one of the twins, Lil Pete, was named as a junior and that somehow that showed favoritism toward him straight out of the womb and like he was the anointed one and the other one was just like the lesser that. But to me, I don't know, it doesn't really make sense. Kids get named, but they get named. Imagine they probably planned on having a junior and so whoever came out first got it and that was just the way it was, which I mean, realistically, that's how it works in families all the time. I don't think namesakes, juniors or seconds or whatever, I don't think they're always thrilled about being the namesake. (laughs) Are you speaking from personal experience? I'm just saying it certainly doesn't feel anointed. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I just didn't see it that way either. But in a lot of the things I've read, listened to, watched, a lot of people make a comment about that, that, oh, Pete was a chosen one and how that might have created some sort of animosity. But I just, I don't see it. Anyway, so these twins, they've always been big. And when I say big, I don't mean like eight feet tall. They were tall, but like big all the way around, tall, large, big boned, and a lot of stuff hanging off the big bones. The boys were already right around 250 pounds when they were entering seventh grade. Yikes. And so from an early age, being big their whole lives, they were made fun of for it. They were picked on for their size throughout grade school and early on into middle school. And by the time they reached adulthood, they were pushing about 350 pounds a piece. Yikes. Now back to their childhood. Dad was described as stern, sometimes maybe a little bit physical, But it seems like from everything I've read, maybe they got spanked, something like that. But there's no indication from anything I read that there were allegations that he was physically abusive. But there certainly are reports that, you know, he would be like emotionally abusive. He'd yell at them, he'd demean them, he'd mess with them, pick on them. And he had a bit of a temper. And then on the opposite side of that, there are reports that mom babied these guys. And what I mean is like neighbors or other people in the community might say, Pete and Pat were doing this, and Mom just wasn't going to have it. They were her perfect little angels that couldn't do any wrong. That combination of a dad who would yell and could be harsh and demeaning, and a mom who, as the old expression goes, would let the kids get away with murder, uh, turned out to be a pretty dangerous combination. That's not an entirely unusual family dynamic there that you're describing, especially kids born in the 50s. 
Yeah, for sure. It's not like everybody who had a overbearing dad and a mom that could see you do no wrong turned out to be psycho killers like our boys here. One of the things that I think maybe it helped to foster was it kind of forged this bond that Pete and Pat would have. They're already twins. There's plenty of documentation and evidence that show that twins have a unique understanding, a unique bond. They look very similar. And each of them looks like Wilford Brimley swallowed an inflatable pool toy uh, is the best I can describe it. And I'm not talking about the diabetes public service announcement. I'm talking about from the firm when he was a security guy. That's literally the movie that I was picturing in my mind with Tom Cruise. He's wearing the suspenders. Uh-huh. But that's what these guys look like. Well, these guys, it's funny because they look the same, but they're not identical twins. They just happen to be very similar in appearance. So as you can imagine, just from this conversation... They had been picked on as young kids, but then as time went on, they sort of developed a reputation of being scary and went from getting bullied to becoming the bullies. There were stories about them that are just really kind of bizarre. They would just rip farts in class. Some people wonder, was that just to see if somebody would say something? It would almost be like they'd look for fights to pick. Little Petey was known to have a temper. He was the first to fight. Pat was way more chill, docile in the back. But the thing was, Pat would jump in a fight with Pete no matter what. People said, if you were going to fight one of the brothers, then you were fighting both the brothers. They were a package deal. So they start to really develop this reputation as being odd and eccentric and a little bit scary. And you think they're huge for their age and for the kids in their class. And so they just own it and they run with it. And it seems like from everything I've looked at, you know, they kind of enjoyed being like these weird, outcast, scary types. And these odd and gross habits, they don't ever really stop into adulthood. It's not like they aged out at some point. They just kept it going. They would do really weird things. For example, they would eat raw hamburger meat with their bare hands in front of people. Oh, that's disgusting. Just to get a rise, just to do it. And I don't mean like a little bit. I mean, they'd sit down with a couple pounds of raw hamburger meat and just scoop it into their mouths and eat it cold. Oh, tartar. <laughs> yeah. And there's a story about one of the brothers making a bet for a case of beer that he could drink two bottles of hot sauce. And this old boy took them one right after the other, supposedly sucked the hot sauce right out of the bottles and just downed them. And having won the bet, he rode off from the bar on a bicycle with the case of beer on his lap. I just want you to picture that for a second. What lap? <laughs> Sitting down, he probably didn't even have knees that were visible. To me, I thought the most interesting part of that story was that he left on some kind of bike, but... Yeah, but look, I've done some dumb shit for a beer. So, Have you ever drank two bottles of hot sauce? I've done worse <laughs> for less beer. I don't know if I want to know. Oh, boy. Now, unfortunately, being weird and definitely gross just wasn't the only thing that kind of gave these guys this scary sort of off-limits reputation. Yeah, and by the way, I would not be picking on their girth if they were not bags of shit in their own right. If these guys were saints that were taking care of orphans and widows and whatnot, I'd be extremely respectful about them. So, so before we lose the 35 listeners that we have, you're saying that you're not fat shaming them because they're fat. You're fat shaming them because they're terrible human beings. Yes. When you're a bag of shit person, then everything's on the table and your dimensional challenges, they can come into play. And I'm fat too, so I can do it. <laughs> These guys got me beat a little bit, but I was going to say, I think you're like one of their legs, but fair enough. It, it's, they are a sight to be seen. We'll say that. Now, like I was saying, 
they weren't just gross and they weren't just weird. They were also pretty terrible. So this ties in. This next part is disturbing. It involves hurting animals. I would not blame you for skipping ahead a couple beats if that would bother you or cause more upset than you can handle. I might need to step out. Yeah, I didn't put this in the notes because I didn't want you to read it ahead of time because I thought you might actually leave. A way to give me a trigger warning. I just did. So if you're going to leave, now's the time. But this is pretty terrible. So it is widely reported and shared that when the brothers were younger, kind of teenage jerks, that they would take cats from the neighborhood and that they would dig holes in the ground and bury the cats with just their heads sticking out. And then they would get a lawnmower and... Oh, come on. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Oh, that's despicable. So if that's not red flag enough, there's also a story. How could you do that and not puke? How could you do that, period? I don't, I can't, yeah. I agree, how could you do that, period? But the thought of it, that would make me vomit to think of such, what disgusting. I'm glad you left that out. Yeah, like I said, these guys, they're awful people. There's also a story that it's hard to find corroborating proof of some of this stuff just because of the nature of it and whatnot. But a story that's commonly shared is that their dad was having them help feed a calf at one point and bottle feeding it. And so dad was showing him how to do it and whatever. And then something came up and he had to go take care of something real quick. And so he said, okay, you guys finish bottle feeding the calf. I'll be right back. And so he leaves not super long and comes back. And when he comes back, the calf is laying there dead. And so he's like, you know, what, what happened? And they said, we tried to bottle feed it and it wouldn't take the bottle. So we killed it with a two by four. So there's definitely some serious red flag issues in the early years of these bros that uh, things were not great. And as hard to stomach as these stories are, when you look at the sort of things they did as adults, it certainly doesn't seem to be outside the realm of possibility. Now, at one point, the boys stole a gun and they hit it. They stole the gun from this guy and they buried it in some ground waiting for things to, you know, kind of lay low and we'll get it again later. The guy they stole it from, he knew that they had taken it. So he goes to their house to talk to Big Pete. And Big Pete was furious. He made the boys come out and talk to this guy. You know, they had this meeting, the four of them right there on the kind of the front stoop. And he told the boys, they're going to get it. They're going to return your gun. And uh, allegedly, there's some reporting that the dad made a comment that there was like a hammer kind of sitting nearby. They'd been working on something or whatever. And so he made a comment to the boys, you know, I ought to pick that hammer up and beat your brains in for stealing this guy's gun. Now, what is definitely backed up, though, is in addition to having the boys go find the gun that they had buried and return it, he also made them go work in this guy's store as a sort of a penance for stealing from him, even though the guy just wanted his gun back and said, like, no, you know, I'm good. They don't need to come do that. I just want my gun. Dad was adamant that, no, they need to learn a lesson from stealing and they're going to come work for you for free. And uh, yeah, like I said, all the red flags, right? We got stealing. We got torturing animals. We got just weird, odd crazy behavior. They're getting picked on as kids. It's just all this stuff is not good. The bullying and the strange behavior, those are one thing, but the torturing animals, if that isn't a red flag. Oh, for sure. And then yeah. combine it with the rest. And I know you love animals more than people, so I'm sure that was... I mean, they're much more reliable and honest. You're not wrong. Now, as the bros got older, they got a little bit involved in drugs, and then they got a lot bit involved in drugs. See, they found that this was a way for them to make friends particularly girlfriends. You got to imagine, right? So these dudes, they were pretty big and they were farting in class. These guys were not the popular captain of the football team types. So I would imagine it's probably a little bit difficult for them in the dating scene. 
Well, they figured out that if you're a drug dealer, there are some people who are going to like you no matter what you look like or, you know, how despicable you may be. And so they went from being into drugs to dealing drugs pretty well, quickly. It's obvious to me that they were not using meth. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, one of the brothers, especially like uh, later on in the story as he grew up, would basically do any drug and all the drugs, including he would shoot meth. We'll get into some of that later, but they get into this sort of drug dealing sphere and they use their size and their reputations their weirdness to just intimidate and put off other drug dealers. So they come in and they're like, we're it. And so they establish themselves as like this formidable, scary, intimidating pair of, you know, they saw themselves as like drug lords of this area. Okay. Now the duo graduated from Elkton High School in 1973. The December after graduation, Pat started working at the Pulaski Rubber Company, which Pulaski's right there in Tennessee near Elkton is just down the road. And the place he worked at, this rubber company, they made the rubber flooring that goes in school buses. You know what I'm talking about? Like in the middle, the... Yeah, sure. Absolutely. The floor that we've all probably walked on at some point in our lives. And Pat's employment was steady. To his credit, which it hurts me to say anything nice about him, to his credit, he worked at this place from right after he graduated high school in 73 all the way up through April of 1990. And we'll get later into why he didn't work there anymore. But for right now, let's just say he had steady employment, the same place for what I'm bad at math, but like 17 years. Yeah. A long time. Now around 1980, Pat was in a minor traffic accident. And this is one of those stories that is almost unbelievable. He's in an accident and the woman that he gets in his fender bender with is named Denise. So they're exchanging insurance information and whatnot. And Pat shoots a shot and somehow for whatever reason, Denise is picking up what he's putting down. They end up getting hitched in March 1983. Could you imagine that this is like a this is like a weird twisted Hallmark movie, right? Like Yeah, right. You know, over a car accident, but vehicular vows. Right. Despite this guy being a bag of shit. And you see this with plenty of even serial killers that they have a certain charisma mm. about them. You wouldn't sound like that would come from these guys that seem to have zero manners and do wild things, but Apparently they were capable, at least Pat was capable of some charisma in the moment. He had the riz. Yeah, yeah, he had. Yeah. Wow. You you are way more popular than I am. It took me like 10 years to figure out that word. And and you bring up a good point about at least Pat, right? Interestingly enough, you know, we're kind of detailing Pat's path out of high school. And what we see with him is he seems to just be a normal dude. He meets this woman. They get married. He's working. He's holding down a job at a factory. Like, he's doing his thing, and everything seems to be pretty well okay. And I think Denise, the woman that he married, she would say that up until about 1986, everything was great. And so we'll circle back to what happens in 1986 later. But first, we need to talk about how things were going for the other Bondurant brother. By the way, everything I've heard, their names are pronounced Bondurant. To me, every time I look at it, it looks like some kind of French word, and I want to say bondurant, but apparently that's wrong. I'll just say now, if I mispronounce their name at some point, I'm sorry, but I feel like it's bound to happen. Now, unlike Pat, who seems to be living the small-town American dream by getting in a traffic accident that turns into a marriage and working at a rubber factory that seemed to be a pretty decent job, after Pete graduated from high school, he had the definition of sporadic employment. I mean, like all over the place, literally. He's in different towns. He's at different jobs, different fields. I mean, it's everywhere. I don't really think it's worth documenting and going into all the jobs he had. But suffice it to say that it really was like all over the place. It was clear this is a guy who's just like incapable of 
holding down steady employment in anything. And well, I mean, to, a lot of people take a gap year. <laughs> Isn't that what it's called now, a gap year? Yeah, but that back then, I mean, we're talking the 70s. Okay, if he would have rode around the country in a VW van just getting high and like meeting people, I could understand. This is like he's actually trying to go workplaces, but he's there for a month or two months. And he's in different towns. He's around home for a bit, I think. And then he sort of ends up in the South. And then he ends up, you know, up in the Midwest. At one point, and this is the one thing I do want to talk about, apparently he spent a month and one day in the U.S. Army, which I have so many questions. And he apparently received an honorable discharge. Now, that fact, I've seen in a couple of places, but one place that I find it, there's a book, I'll link it in the show notes, called Murder, Murder. It's got some interesting details written by a guy who's from that area. Given Pete's physical condition, I'm like really confused at how he even, like that the recruiters, I just, I have a lot of questions. I'm no. not really sure how that worked. But needless to say, it didn't work out in the end. He only spent a month in the Army. So at the same time that Pat is working away at the rubber company, he's doing fine. Pete's out there and he's just floundering. You got to think, too, this is the first time in their lives that they're like not connected at the hip because all through school, they've got this twin thing going on and they're like buddies and they're doing weird stuff to animals and they're, they have this shared existence. And now that they've split up a little bit, Pat, he's thriving. He's doing just fine. And Pete's out here, I mean, just falling apart. It can't hold a job down for very long. He seems to just be bouncing around all these different places. It was just, it's a crap show. My take on this for Pete, and I'm not saying this for people who have bounced around from different jobs. This is very specifically meant for this person in this situation. He just seemed to be not amenable to living as a productive member of society. And I wish I could say that it was that he just wasn't able to be productive and he was not helping. But it's worse than that because not only was he not productive and not helping, but then he becomes what I would consider to be a menace or a bane to society. In August 1974, Pete was living in Cincinnati, Ohio. Now, I don't think he had been there very long because he hadn't been anywhere very long, but he'd been there for a little bit and he'd been hanging out with and staying. It seemed like a quasi roommate situation, maybe just hanging on the couch, couch surfing, whatever, spending some time with uh, these two guys named Roger. They were both Roger. So we got Roger one, Roger two. Because Wait, so you got Roger and Pete? Roger, Pete, Roger. Yeah. Or Pete, Roger, Roger. But yes, we've got two Rogers and a Pete. Because of that, we're just, I'm not going to get into the names because that gets confusing. So one particular evening, the three men, they're hanging out and they've got these two lady friends over. W one of the women is a girlfriend of one of the Rogers and the other one maybe is like a quasi girlfriend or just a friend of the other Roger. So they're all hanging out. It seems to be just a pretty casual, there might've been some drinking or whatever. It wasn't like a party scene. It was just some friends hanging out, having a good evening together. And at one point in the evening, the two women leave to go get some cigarettes and soda. And they're heading down to a store that's not too far away. It's just right down the street. So they're not going to be gone very long. When they leave, one of the Rogers is laid down on the couch. I think it's gotten kind of late. And so maybe he's like taking a nap on the couch. The other Roger is awake. So they go to get their cigarettes and their sodas. Now, they're not going long, and when they come back, the door, which had been unlocked to the apartment, is now locked. So they knock, and they knock, and it takes a minute or so. It's longer than what you would expect. And finally, the door opens, and Pete's standing there. And standing in front of them, he's holding a knife and says something to the effect of, you're next. And so the women are like, that's strange. And I don't know about you. I suspect if I'm them, I'm just not even processing really what's happening. It's just like, okay, this guy's weird. He's got a knife. And there had been some talk after all this went down about how 
apparently in the days leading up to this, he would flash a knife and play with it to the point that they finally said, Pete, can you knock that crap off? Like, it's weird. Maybe it's because I know these guys are horrible people, but you come to the door and there's Pete with a knife saying, you're next. I feel like my reaction is, feats don't fail me now, <laughs> and I am Fred Flintstone peddling away from that joke. Yeah, that's fair. You got to think too, all these, I should have pointed out, these people are all young at this point in time. I think one of the girls is actually 17. I think the other one's 18 or 19. One of the Rogers is 19. I think the other Rogers 24 and Pete, he's in his early 20s. So everybody in this situation is pretty young. And so maybe that has an effect. But as he says this and he's standing in front of them with his knife, they look past him and see that one of the Rogers is on the floor, not far away, bleeding. And the other Roger who had been asleep on the couch is naked on the couch in that He's now covered in blood. In the beginning, he's there with a knife. You could think, okay, it's just a joke. He's being stupid. I'm sure they knew it was weird at this so point. So whatever, but I don't care. Unless you are the dumb white chick in the horror movie, when someone's standing there with a knife saying, you're next, and there's bloody people on the floor, this is time to go. So you're like not the kind of friend I want, but these chicks are the kind of friends I want. Because instead of Fred Flintstone and out of there, they push past Pete into the apartment and try to care for the Rogers. Now, Pete apparently turns around and has this whole green giant fee-fi-fo-fum thing where he like comes toward them. They're all screaming. And one of the girls says, you know, she kind of heads toward a phone and says, you better get out of here. I'm calling the cops right now, blah, blah, blah. Somehow that spooks him, which kind of surprises me. But he ends up leaving the apartment. Neighbors at this point are starting to come out and see what's going on because these women are they're screaming hysterically, as you can imagine. And so he leaves the apartment. He doesn't get very far. He's walking and the police show up and he just goes right up to him. It's like, yeah, I stabbed those guys. And so they very quickly put him in cuffs and put him in the car. And Wow. So there's no attempt to conceal it. That's interesting. Yeah. So once Pete's in custody, and I think this gives you a little bit of his psychology, right? Because he doesn't try to conceal. He doesn't try to run away or whatever. Instead, he goes this route. He tries to spin some yarn. And I mean like a whole Joanne Fabrics aisle of yarn. His story from one investigating officer to the detectives even changes, and it varies across this spectrum of he was acting in self-defense after being robbed and attacked by the Rogers who were threatening him, or the other story is that he was defending himself because they had threatened to hurt him or kill him if he didn't give them blowjobs. So it is just all over the place. And the story about being robbed and stuff is very detailed about they took this silver dollar that his mom had given him and he wanted it back for sentimental reasons. And he asked nicely for it back. And then they threatened to kill him with a bottle and a knife. It's just, it's completely unbelievable. Completely unbelievable. It's one thing that some subtle details change in a story, but those are totally different stories. Yeah, exactly. Totally different. And the thing was, it was just, they're so incredible. And they, the details didn't line up. They didn't make sense. The cops weren't buying it. Nobody was buying it. And most importantly, the physical evidence contradicted some of the things that Pete was saying in his tall tales. So the Roger who'd been sleeping on the couch died from his injuries. An autopsy revealed that he had been stabbed 46 times in his chest, neck, and arms. Dang on. 40 of them at least were with a screwdriver. Oh. And five or six were with a knife. Now, the other Roger had also been stabbed about 40 times, but somehow miraculously survived the attack. Oh, outstanding. Now, Pete, as awful as he is, he apparently wasn't a complete idiot because facing murder charges and ample evidence against him, 
he realizes he's between a rock and a hard place and he decides that he's going to take a plea deal. So he pled guilty to manslaughter and attempted manslaughter. You don't care to guess what his sentence was? What sentence he received? I'm guessing it's going to be infuriating because we're, we're talking about these people. We're in Ohio in case that helps you decide what he was sentenced to under this plea deal. No. You don't want to give it a go? No, because right. he should have been locked up and throw away the key. But obviously we're talking about Pete and Pat, so it wasn't uh, long enough. Yeah, so he gets sentenced to 7 to 25 years in the Ohio Penitentiary. Now, that might seem like, okay, that's not enough, but at least that's a couple decades, hopefully. But he becomes eligible for parole very quickly. I'm talking like five years he's eligible for parole for killing a guy with a screwdriver and trying to kill another guy. Well, nearly killing the other guy. Yeah, clearly. It wasn't like he had second thoughts about it. It was just that guy somehow amazingly lived. Right. So he becomes eligible for parole after serving five years of his sentence, and he is let out five years and just about a month worth of time in the penitentiary. Now, even wilder than that, if you can believe it, Ohio law at the time provided that the term of parole would only be one year, no matter what. On a seven to 25 year sentence, he gets let out after five years. But he only was on parole for one year and then he's completely unsupervised. Bingo. So he does his one year of parole and then he's completely done. So within six years of stabbing one Roger 46 times, another one about 40, murdering one and daggone near killing the other. Six years later, he's a free man with no supervision whatsoever. This is why there was such an outcry and a push in the 80s to get tough on crime. Yeah, and you might think that this is where the Bondurant story ends, right? After all, we've discussed enough for a typical murder pod episode. But honestly, this is just the prologue to this gruesome, horrible story about these bags of human excrement, as you would say. A murder and a half, not to mention the calf, the cats. Yeah, and if we fast forward to May 1986... The bros are back together. So Pete and Pat, Pete returns to his hometown there and he reunites with his brother, Pat. Remember, Pat is married to Denise and things were going pretty well. And this is the turning point when Pete comes back into the picture because Pete comes and he lives with them. It's back to that whole twin dynamic of they're just like vibing together. Yeah, the despicable duo reunites. Exactly. And it is not pretty at all. So it's May 30th, 1986. The bros are having a party at Pat's house. Pete's manslaughter convictions are way behind him at this point. He's staying with Pat, and they're just on this force to reckon with kind of reunion tour. Now, Pat's house, it's a rundown old farmhouse. I'm being charitable. It's set about 100 yards off of the road, and it was conveniently located right by a gentleman's club with exotic dancers. I purposefully left the name out of my notes. I had to independently verify this was correct because I didn't believe it. I thought it was a typo. It was the Booby Bungalow. Yeah, you heard that correctly. Pat's place is sort of like this twilight zone for drug use and general debauchery. It just had this reputation as a place to go, get lit, and not be bothered by pesky things like police or laws. If I had to guess, I'd say hygiene was probably also optional while you were there. And... Now, in May, in 86, this party, it was a party party. Alcohol, drugs, people are popping pills, they're partying hard, there's all sorts of things going on. During this particular evening, a young woman named Gwen and her younger brother showed up at Pat's house to pick up a car that had been left with the brothers to be fixed. It had some issues and they were going to work on it and repair it. 
when they got there, the car was ready. But the Bonduran boys had been charming Gwen, and they encouraged her to stay and hang out and party with them. And so she decided to hang around and join this party that was going on. And there were plenty of other people there. And they assured her little brother that they'd take care of her and that they'd get her home safe. So he left. Now I want to take a minute and let's get to know Gwendolyn Carol Duggar. Okay. She was born in April 1962. Her maiden name was Swanner. I hope I'm saying that correctly. I think so. And she went by Gwen, like I said. She was born in Alabama in an area near the border with Tennessee. She spent her whole life in this area. And she graduated from Ardmore High School in 1980. Now, Ardmore is an interesting place because there's Ardmore, Alabama, and there's also Ardmore, Tennessee. They border one another. And from some sources I've read, they share a lot of city services, including police and fire. And they have folks who serve on councils or committees from both states. So it's like a joint committee that runs the town with members from each state. To really put a point on this, Main Street actually runs down the state line. So if you're on the north side of Main Street eating at the Taco Bell, you're in Tennessee and you'd be looking out the window and across the street, you'd see a McDonald's there and it's in Alabama and they both be in Ardmore. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. In 1990, Ardmore, Alabama had about 1,100 residents and Ardmore, Tennessee had about 900. So Ardmore proper altogether was sitting right around 2,000 folks, a little over six and a half square miles. And while we're talking geography, I want to bring back Elkton, Tennessee, where we have the Bondurants. In 1990, Elkton's population was a little under 500, so it's a pretty small town. These are all small towns. Bingo. This is just, it's all rural, small places in, I think it's pronounced Giles County. It's with a G though, so Giles, Giles, who knows. Elkton is, is it's a small place in this county in Tennessee that's just about a 10-minute drive up I-65 from Ardmore, Alabama, which is the furthest south part of Ardmore. Now, back to Gwen. I wanted to figure out a little bit more about her and to just share a little bit about what she was like and who she was. There's not a lot of information out there about her, but I was able to find some things from friends and acquaintances on public Facebook posts and in that book that I referenced earlier, it'll be in the show notes. And she seems like your fairly typical sweet young lady from the 80s. She was petite. She was five foot three. People just said she's probably just about 100 pounds. Not very big. She's a small girl. She had blonde hair, was described as kind and carefree, just a really happy person. When she was younger, she would ride her bicycle with her friends and was described as the kind of person who just never met a stranger, got along with everybody. Her best friend, Cindy, said as they got a little older, they'd cruise around town, go to drive-in movies, eat a lot of fast food. And she shared a story about Gwen eating corn on the cob that was funny and said that she just really loved corn on the cob. That was like one of her favorite things to eat, which I thought that was cool. And Cindy would eventually become more than just Gwen's really good friend. In the early 1980s, Gwen actually eloped with Cindy's brother, which they did without telling anybody. And everybody was surprised, a little taken aback by it. And then in 1983, Gwen gave birth to their son, Cindy's nephew. In that book, Cindy recounts a story about Gwen going to the store to buy diaper pins for her son. Now, some people listening probably have no idea what a diaper pin is. You care to educate them? Yeah, but I think that with all this environmental stuff, the disposable diapers have lost favor and to some degree and reusable diapers have come back into popularity. But yeah, diaper pins are what you would use to hold a cloth diaper in place because they don't come with or they didn't come with those little elastic bands and Velcro. Thank you, Father Tom. So Gwen came back from the store with a pink plastic tipped diaper pin because if you can picture it, it's kind of like this oversized looking safety pin type thing. 
And then on the one end, you got to remember it's going on a baby's diaper. So you're trying to make it a little safer than just your generic safety pin. So on the one end, like where it would open and stuff, there was this plastic coating. And back then there was blue for boys and pink for girls. And so she comes back from the store and she's got these pink ones. And so Cindy calls her out about it and says, why'd you buy pink ones? You've got a son. He's a boy. You're supposed to get the blue ones. And Gwen says that the store didn't have blue ones and keeping his diapers on was pretty important. So pink it was. Right. From then on, Gwen just continued the trend. So she always got pink ones and always used pink ones. And when her son got a little bit older and didn't need diapers anymore, she took one of the pins and hooked it onto her tennis shoe as a, a kind of a memento. And that detail will come back around later in our story. Now, Gwen's marriage wasn't going so hot, and so she and her husband, they would divorce. Her ex-husband was awarded custody of their son, and her friend Cindy, who is Gwen's ex's sister, described how heartbroken and upset Gwen was, and that it was really difficult for her because she felt like, you know, she lost her husband, she lost her son, like her whole world just fell apart. Gwen apparently told Cindy at some point after all of this had taken place that she just didn't think she was going to live past 24, and sadly, she didn't. Yeah, creepy premonition that, yeah, that comes true. For sure. So let's go back to Pat's place in 1986. Remember, we were there when we decided to take a little side route and talk about Gwen. Yeah. Back at this party in May in 1986, Pete took a liking to Gwen, and so he just starts feeding her drugs. And I mean, like, giving her drugs to the point where she's not in her right mind at all. She's barely coherent. She's conscious. She's breathing. She's some level of alert, but really just not in any frame of normal or correct mind whatsoever. Now, the next part of this story involves as brief discussion as I can make it about sexual assault. So if that bothers you, this is your chance to bow out, to fast forward it, or to just quit listening, whatever works for you. And we would understand. Eventually, Gwen is incapacitated to the point she can't really even walk for herself. And there's some details to this story that, frankly, it's just awful. I'm going to leave them out because I don't even want to have to say them. But if you can just somehow imagine that it's even worse than what I'm telling you, it's worse than what I'm telling you. So at this point, Gwen is, she's conscious, she's alive, but she can't really do anything for herself. And Pete, he takes her to a bathroom in Pat's house and he rapes her. And as if that's not disgusting and infuriating enough... Pat decides that when Pete's done, he's going to also rape Gwen. He's waiting for his turn, essentially, and is just going to join in as soon as Pete's done. And Disgusting. I, yeah, I mean, on so many levels, that's gross. You know, I wouldn't even drink after you. And yeah, so I agree. Even if we're talking about a consensual thing, but nonetheless, rape is rape, period, and that's what's going on here. And these guys, you know, I just thinking, too, about, like I said, Gwen, I, I mean... The contrast, it seems like she's this nice, young, happy, carefree mom who is just like a sweet lady, who's also short and petite. And then you've got these guys who are like scum of the earth, who also happen to be like tall and huge and gross and nasty. And it's just awful. It's absolutely awful. It's it, like you said, it's disgusting. It's criminal and it's evil. Now, remember, Denise is Pat's wife, and Denise is pregnant at this time, and she's at this house party gathering thing. So Denise notices that she hasn't seen Pat in a while, and she decides she's going to go looking for him. She finds him, and he's in the bathroom raping Gwen. Now, uh. initially, I don't think it's, it, at least from, and some of this is from Denise's point of view, so take it with a grain of salt, but initially, it seems like she doesn't necessarily realize that he's raping her as much as she thinks this is just some consensual, he's cheating on her. And so initially she's mad at both of them. She goes in, she's screaming at them both. She's wailing and 
whatever, which you could kind of understand if she doesn't know the whole context. And so then she ends up going away. And as she goes away, Pat, he just goes right back to it. Like it doesn't even bother him. He goes right back to raping Gwen. Wow. Um, So after this horrificness and more that we're just not going to get into, a while later, Gwen basically ends up on a floor in the house. And Denise, who's like still peeved, goes to talk to her and they kind of get into it. Gwen is out of it. I mean, she's drugged out of her mind. So she's like barely coherent. And so this interaction, it's strange. And Denise is mad and Gwen's just, God help her. It's an awful situation. So then while Denise is trying to interact with Gwen and is still upset about what has occurred, at least in her mind, what took place, Pat comes out and he's holding a wooden axe handle, just a handle. And he tries to hand it to Denise. And Denise is sort of like, what am I supposed to do with this? I don't need an axe handle. And kind of says, no, I don't need that. So she's probably thinking, you know, I just want to give her a a good old-fashioned whooping. Well, that's when things take another turn. Pat responds to Denise and is basically like, all right, if you don't want to do it, I will. And then according to Denise, he takes this axe handle with both hands and raises it above his head and just brings it down on Gwen with as much force as he has and just hits her in the head with it. And then he proceeds to just beat and bludgeon her. Denise, at this point, says she's shocked. She just doesn't even know how to respond to standing there in disbelief. Gwen is bleeding and badly injured. And I can imagine that this scene is just absolutely horrific and terrifying. Yeah, and if Denise was thinking that this was Gwen and her husband cheating, and now he's beating her with an axe handle, she's got to be realizing that that's not what's happening here. Exactly. Yeah. And she says that it's this day is the point where she saw that their marriage, even though they would stay married, that that things really, this was the end of it. You think? Yeah. Right. Now, curiously, and this is where I wonder how much exactly I can trust what Denise says. And I don't know, you know, I've never been in this situation, but she responds in my mind a little curiously by telling Pat, hey, you need to go clean yourself up. And so they head to a bathroom and she starts helping him like clean blood off of him and just get cleaned up, which I just think is a bit strange in all this. Maybe she's just trying to distract him or whatever. I don't know, but that's what happens. So then while they're cleaning Pat up, brother Pete emerges and surmises that Gwen is not in good shape. And seeing as how Pat has just beat her senseless, Pete tells Pat and Denise that he's going to put Gwen out of her misery. So he has a 22 that he pulls out and he shoots her twice in the head, killing her. Isn't he just humane? Right. He acts like this is a good, honorable thing to do. He didn't do that to be humane or anything honorable. That was just about finishing the job of killing her. Yeah. If you had any inkling to think that maybe Pete wasn't as terrible as we think he is, after Pete shoots Gwen, he collects the shell casings and he hangs on to the shell casings as mementos. He keeps them. He carries them around in his pocket on a regular basis. He fiddles with them like a fidget spinner, like a twisted serial killer version of that or like dice or something, and he actually even names them. What? He calls them Gwenbees. Oh, come on. Yeah. You think when I talk about him murdering the Rogers, that's like the bad part of the story, and it is a bad part of the story, and the sad thing is it just gets worse from there. Next, the three would go on covering up what had taken place. The brothers believe that if there's no body, then they could probably get away with murder. So what they did to Gwen after they killed her is almost as bad as what they did to her while she was alive. I can't even imagine. But you'll be telling us about the disturbing disposal of Gwen's body, the other murders these evil twins were involved in, and where they are now in the next episode. 
Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. Good luck.